0: In episode 1 and 2, we saw that the history of people of color in nature in the U.S. has been erased. So today, when we're talking about things like camping, hiking, going to national parks, those stories almost always feature white people. But not only that, accessing this type of recreation requires a lot of time and money. Altogether, this creates a pretty exclusive culture. While talking to people at these parks in San Francisco, one activity kept coming up that seemed to separate regular outdoorsy people from the hardcore nature lovers. That activity was solo camping, it's when you go out by yourself to the wild, often on a journey that lasts more than a week. One woman went on a solo trip that lasted three months. Her name is Cheryl Strayed, and a few years ago there was a movie made up about her trip. We need to do-
1: Okay, so I'm going to pick out the stuff that's useless to you, and you can leave it in the free box, unless you can give me a good reason why you need it with you. Okay. Okay?
0: In this movie, as Cheryl prepares to go on her trip, she's put through what is essentially a process of indoctrination. She is taught that she has to leave behind a lot of her possessions, she's told that she can't be weak because being in the wilderness is a matter of life or death, and she's told to keep a journal because being in the wilderness is about being alone and deep, intense self-reflection. There's nothing that transforms you like feeling vulnerable in nature or so they say. I met one park ranger who was the first in his family to go camping.
2: National parks aren't a part of our culture, aren't a part of our, our way of living. Um, in fact, when I started going to more national parks and camping and being outdoors, you know, my mom was like, you know, I traveled all these many miles and crossed how many borders for y'all to go out and sleep in the dirt?
0: Nowadays, there are all sorts of organizations that exist to get people from marginalized backgrounds into the outdoors. Groups like Outdoor Afro that plans backpacking trips for African Americans, or Latino Outdoors that does the same for Latinx people. These organizations follow the script of indoctrination and outdoor education that's supposed to create true nature lovers. Some are trying to create their own new culture, but others are essentially doing what John Muir wanted environmentalists to do. But when you don't look like John Muir, who is a white male, scary things can happen. If you're a person of color and you're alone in the woods, things might happen like people calling the police on you because they see your skin color and assume you're trespassing, or someone might decide that they can't help you with directions because they don't want you coming close to them. All of these acts of discrimination that happen in society happen out there in the woods too. And maybe with even heightened intensity because you're out there all alone. In this third and final episode of Neutral Grounds, we look at how racialization is currently interacting with the culture of environmentalism. How is recreation being modified to fit a person's social designation? People are finding ways to deal with what society has dealt them. This is what's been going on.
2: And my whole start was actually trying to help design a leadership program, um, which became the IL program that summer.
0: This is Ernesto Pepito, Associate Director for Youth Leadership for the Parks Conservancy. Ernesto is someone who has been thinking a lot about how to get the next generation and marginalized youth into environmental work. His program is based here in Crissy Field, right at the northern tip of San Francisco. He and his team take kids from high school and teach them how to be community leaders. (laughs) Ernesto says that many of his students are already feeling disconnected and cast aside by society. He says that the first thing they need is to feel like they have a voice.
2: My rationale is that if we just start getting them to care about their community or get them to care about something they can connect to and touch, it feels natural that then they, when they're exposed to climate change, then it's like, wait a second, like I'm a leader. I feel like I can do something about it. I believe. I believe I and a group of people can change the world or or we as a, a nation can do something. you know so 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 to me, it's kind of like climate change, it gets ahead of head of a natural progression of how a young person can feel a sense of responsibility. Um, Right, responsibility for themselves and then their community.
0: Every year, a lot of his students are from marginalized backgrounds, and most of them are people of color. He says that they tend to confront stereotypes head on. Do you ever get comments from kids that are like, "Oh, camping is like a white person thing," (laughs) that kind of stuff?
2: Um,
0: like there's like this lit. There's this website called like White People Like, and then there's like (laughs) 300 things. Yeah, and one of them is like camping. Another one is like hiking
2: one is like talib quali i think or most <laughs> deaf or something um i think i've heard it like retrospectively like not necessarily hey guys we're gonna go camping no kids ever said that's for white people it's <laughs> it's usually like in their reflection like i thought like hiking was just for this group of people or it wasn't something me or i would ever do
0: Ernesto thinks they have this reaction because they aren't seeing themselves reflected in environmentalist culture, but for young people in the group, that lack of representation isn't super intimidating.
2: You know, it's funny. (laughs) 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 One of my favorite projects... uh... One of my favorite projects kind of tackled that question. Part of it was they created a poem and shirts that said, I'm an environmentalist on the front, and then it broke a stereotype on the back. And so mine was, it said, I'm an environmentalist on the front. On the back, it said, I don't eat hummus. (laughs) 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 And then some kids said, I love hip-hop, and I love city lights, and uh, I don't eat organic food.
0: Ernesto recognizes that there are all these cultural indicators that mean you care about the environment. Things like eating hummus or maybe going to the farmer's market, recycling or driving a Prius. A lot of these things are accessible to only a certain group of people who are mostly white and upper middle class.
2: You know, and so it was such a power, for me, it was such a powerful project because it was literally young people kind of claiming like um, environmentalism is ours too. Even though we don't think like you, act like you have the same priorities as you this is this is our field to to kind of like explore and be a part of
0: Ernesto's experience echoes a lot of the polling data that has been going around. There are studies that show that many people from marginalized backgrounds do care about the environment. One of the main reasons they care is because of something called environmental racism. When we look at the aftermath of environmental disasters, like with Hurricane Katrina in Puerto Rico, we see that non-white and already underserved communities are hit much harder than the rest. Just across the bay are many low-income communities in Oakland, Richmond, and Alameda. Environmental justice organizations argue that every single person has the right to a healthy environment, no matter who they are. That means being in a place where there isn't toxic dumping, and there's clean air, clean water, and governmental support in the face of natural disasters. The Asian Pacific Environmental Network is just one of
3: these activist groups. In Oakland Chinatown, for example, um, you know... Over 80% of the neighborhood is Asian, and then a majority of folks who are living there are making anywhere from 20 dollars to $30,000 a year.
0: Alvina Wong is an organizer for the network. She says that most of her team consists of new immigrants or non-English speakers.
3: We know that our communities are in deep need. and are are thus also some of the folks that are most deeply impacted by different policies, by different climate change issues, by different resource distribution um, issues. And so in ways that, you know, we're both organizing our community because we need to, we're also organizing our community because their issues and their needs aren't always being heard as, a smaller community, as a marginalized community.
0: But issues of health and jobs aren't the only ones on these activist minds. Like anyone else, they pursue
3: ways to relax. And relaxing at a park or taking an open space like isn't a new concept to them. When you think about, like, what's something fun that you want to do today? They want to be outdoors. They want to go to the parks. They want to go, to, go on a hike or go swimming. They want to do these nature-related things. Um, mm-hmm. So it's not like... It's not like there's just, like, a disinterest.
0: And yet, they can't exactly isolate themselves in the woods like, say, Cheryl Strade does.
3: For our immigrant folks, it's hard to feel comfortable going anywhere where you know that someone is going to not be able to understand you. So you kind of end up staying in an area where you at least know that someone may be bilingual or someone can, you know, speak the same language as you. So going out further into the woods where, you know, reception probably won't be so good, you don't know, like, sometimes there are, like, natural dangers and stuff. If you don't see the people that, like, reflect your community, you're not as willing to go out and make those risks.
0: When I asked what our members might do outdoors instead, Alvina says they'll organize in urban outdoor spaces and do things like picnics in neighborhood parks or Tai Chi in the city plaza. These are spaces that Alvina says remind her members to ask
3: themselves, what does a clean and livable environment look like? And they want to have places where they don't have to worry about air quality. And so I think from that perspective, um, we... Definitely inspire and encourage our members to, to think about what type of environment are they fighting for.
0: Like Ernesto said, even if we don't look like or think like the typical environmentalist, we are still building very meaningful relationships with the outdoors. I came to Crissy Field Park on the 4th of July and joined hundreds of people who were barbecuing and playing music. Many of the people I talked to had never gone to a huge, faraway national park. I talked to one woman who came up from the nearby city of San Jose to watch the fireworks. Her and her family were Latinx, and they were celebrating with a huge spread of food. Burgers, stewed beans, beers, casseroles, the works. She told me that growing up, her dad
1: would take her to parks quite frequently. And, you know, he always taught us to be together and, you know, help each other out. Be, you know. Every weekend, he loved to be with his family. I wasn't inviting his family. Even if we didn't go to the park, he will cook at home and invite his family come over every weekend to come and eat.
0: They live near Comanche Lake, which has areas that you can rent for a week or so. Every summer, her dad would take him on a camping trip.
1: My age, I started going camping when I was about ten. Ten all the way until now, you know. We love this, love going camping. And now, she tries to take her own kids out to the parks and teach them to value this group activity. Uh, the value was that, you know, just, just being with your family, enjoying each other, you know, enjoying the family, you know. He was, he was, he was always a family man. You know, my dad, my dad had 11 kids. There was 11 kids, 10 girls, one boy, you know, and, and we have a lot of grandchildren, great grandchildren, great grandchildren. Oh, well our tent, my dad bought a tent that fit like 25 people. It was like a home, you know, it was a big home for having, having a lot of kids. And then my mom and dad had a trailer So they would sleep in the trailer, us us kids had a, a a big tent.
0: When it comes to national parks, however, like Yosemite, she says that there are too many kids to take out there, that she'd rather go to a place like the fairgrounds, an amusement park or a farm, places where her family can be all together. And if you've been to Yosemite National Park, it's clear that her family wouldn't be able to stay. Here's why. Each park has a large list of regulations, and at Yosemite, that prevents large groups of people from camping together. Say you wanted to bring 13 people out camping. You might check out the roomier family campgrounds. However, each of these campsites has a limit of six occupants per family. Maybe even, like the woman I talked to, your parents want to bring a trailer. Well, at Yosemite family sites, trailers aren't allowed. Even if you decided to visit and not stay overnight, to be able to hike the area and go off the trails, you are only allowed to travel in groups of eight. All this means that this woman's cohort won't be getting a lot of family time. And that's pretty disappointing, because this woman is someone who loves being outdoors.
1: The, the feeling is just, it's just, it just makes you, it relaxes you. You feel uh, an enjoyment to see the, you know, how beautiful, the like right now, how beautiful the, the weather is. The sky, the sun hitting the, in some areas, you know, like right now the city, how the sun's hitting just the city, and we're looking at it. And it's just beautiful and just relaxes you and, you know, takes all all your stress out. You don't think about your problems or anything. You're just enjoying yourself.
0: In the last episode, we have to come back to the initial problem of the national parks, that 80% of their attendees are white. When it comes to making parks more inclusive spaces, the administrators of the Golden Gate National Recreation Area in San Francisco are on the right path. They see that changing the homogeneity has to be tackled from many different angles. One is that history has to be told differently. History is difficult to hear. Because it's easy to forget that these open spaces of land were once occupied by people and politics. Second, there needs to be accessible conditions.
2: And make all the parks that absolutely accessible to anybody.
0: And lastly, there must be a cultural shift in thinking about the ways that people can approach the parks. At the moment, there are too many rules about what is and what isn't acceptable in a park. There's too much emphasis on limiting what outdoor recreation should be and not thinking about what it can be. Maybe that looks like spaces for big families or maybe it could look like wheelchair ramps that lead up to gorgeous mountain views or maybe people can go foraging for herbs for cooking. There are endless ways that the park could stop pushing people away from the parks and instead look for ways to place people back into nature. This series was produced with a grant from the Tufts University Summer Scholars Program and with the help of my advisor, Kathy Stanton, who was an ethnographer of the National Park Service for over 15 years. Through this production, I got to meet many inspiring environmentalists of color, and one that I didn't mention was Caroline Finney, author of Black Faces, White Spaces, and a professor at the University of Kentucky. Her chronicle of African-American environmentalism was absolutely essential to the series. This has been Neutral Grounds. Thanks for listening.